Hello and welcome to the Achieve Your Goals podcast, the show that empowers you to wake up to your full potential and achieve your biggest goals and dreams. I am your host, Hal Elrod, and I invite you to join us each week as we share actionable strategies to take your life to the next level, as well as interview world-class experts and entrepreneurs who have achieved extraordinary goals themselves, and we ask them to give you a peek behind the curtain and teach you exactly what you need to do to do the same. Ready? Here we go. Hello, friends and goal achievers. How is it going? This is Hal Elrod. And today's show, today's episode of the Achieve Your Goals podcast is brought to you by the Best Year Ever Blueprint Live Experience. It is the once a year, really once in a lifetime weekend experience where 300 members of the Miracle Morning community and listeners of the Achieve Your Goals podcast come together in person with me, with my good friend and co-host, John Berghoff, in sunny San Diego, California. This will be our fifth annual event every year. Hundreds of members of the community, listeners of the podcast come together to learn, to grow, to connect, to take ourselves and our lives, both personally and professionally, to levels beyond what we've ever experienced before. And what makes the Best Year Ever Blueprint so special, while really there are countless intangibles, there are a few that really stand out to me. And number one is the people. It's the community. Imagine the culture, the uh, energy, the level of engagement of the 174,000 person online Miracle Morning community, right? Just imagine it's one of the most engaged, fastest growing communities in the world. But now imagine being in the same room, not with all 174,000 of us, but with the 300 most dedicated, passionate members of that community. Those that often come back year after year after year to this event, Last year, we had, I think, 16 different countries represented. People flew in from around the world to meet us in San Diego. Number two, it's the experiential nature of the event. It's not what you learn while you're there, but it's what you experience real time in the room, tapping into your greatest strengths, the best version of yourself. We don't just teach you how to do things and then send you home to do them. You actually get to experience everything that you learn in the room using cutting-edge experiential learning science, which I know very little about, but thankfully, my good friend and partner, John Berghoff, is one of the best in the world. Companies like NASA and Facebook bring John in to do what he will do with you that weekend at their company. And the third thing that I think really makes Best Year Ever stand out from any other event out there, it's the focus on becoming versus doing. Similar to the Miracle Morning, we believe that your level of success in every area of your life will always be determined by who you become much more than anything that you learn. And granted, there's a correlation. When you learn things and you apply things, yes, you become more. So the irony is that who you become is far more important than what you do or what you learn, but it's what you learn and what you do that determines who you become. And so we take that all into consideration so that when you leave the event, you leave the event as a different person, a better version of who you were when you walked through the door. And this year's Best Year Ever Blueprint will be December 7th through 9th at my favorite waterfront hotel in all of San Diego. It's the Manchester Grand Hyatt. And a quick logistical point, the main two-day event, Best Year Ever Blueprint event is Saturday and Sunday, December 8th and 9th. And for all of you entrepreneurs, you can choose to attend the optional Entrepreneur Day on Friday, December 7th, where we'll focus on how to launch and grow a seven-figure multi-million dollar business, how to grow your platform or what I like to call your community of loyal, 
raving fans, and even how to improve your financial efficiency so that you keep more of what you earn and a whole lot more. Now, you can get all the details for every part of the event and you can secure your spot at bestyeareverlive.com. Again, that's bestyeareverlive.com. I really hope you can join us for what is sure to be another unforgettable weekend. And I look forward to being with you in San Diego. And in the meantime, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. You're about to meet a man in Scott Harrison, the CEO and founder of Charity Water, who is truly changing the world. And I enjoyed hearing his story, hearing what he's up to, the lessons embedded in what he shares. And I hope you do too. Love you, Goal Achievers. Enjoy today's conversation with Scott Harrison. Goal Achievers. What's going on? Tal Elrod, welcome to the Achieve Your Goals podcast. And as always, you're in for a a killer interview today. Um, Gentleman by the name of Scott Harrison. And if you don't know Scott, he is the founder and CEO of Charity Water, which is a nonprofit organization bringing clean and safe drinking water to people in developing nations. And after a decade, is one of the top nightclub promoters in New York City, which if you haven't heard Scott's story, it's, it's pretty, pretty inspiring. And I'm excited to bring this to you. But he was surrounded by you know the nightclub life, right? Drugs, alcohol. And Scott finally declared spiritual, moral, and emotional bankruptcy. And he started over. He went to Africa. He spent two years there where he saw the effects of dirty water firsthand. And then when he came back to New York City, he came back on a mission and turned his full attention to the global water crisis, which is 663 million people who do not have clean water to drink. Think about that for a second. We wake up and we've got all of our different problems, but one of them, for most of us, is not having to find water for the day for us, for our families to drink. And in 12 years, with the help of more than 1 million donors worldwide, Charity Water has raised more than 320 million dollars and funded nearly 30,000 water projects in 26 countries. And when completed, some of these are still underway, of course, but those projects will provide over 8.5 million people with clean, safe drinking water. And Scott, based on what he has done in the world, the impact that he's made, he's been recognized on Fortune Magazine's list of 40 under 40, Forbes Impact 30, and Fast Company's 100 Most Creative People in Business, where he earned the number 10 spot. And he's currently a World Economic Forum young global leader and author of the new book, Thirst, a story of redemption, compassion, and a mission to bring clean water to the world. And Scott lives in New York City right now with his wife, Victoria, son, Jackson, and daughter, Emma. And it is my great pleasure to have a conversation for the listeners today. Scott, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, yeah. Our, uh, our friend, John Rulin, uh, introduced us. It was actually kind of a coincidence, right? Right after John introduced us, a good friend, Mike Dillard, I saw an email from him and he had had you on his podcast. And I started listening and was just enamored with your story and your passion and your mission and what you've overcome and, and what you're doing now in the world. So let's start with kind of the story. How do you go from being one of the top nightclub promoters in New York City, right? Immersed in that nightclub life to creating and leading one of the most impactful global charities in the world? Take us on that journey. Yeah, well, it was definitely a roundabout path. Uh, you know, in, in some ways, when I started, I was uniquely unqualified on paper to, to do any of this. But um, the story really starts a little earlier. You know, I, I was raised in a very conservative Christian home uh, in Philadelphia, New Jersey. And when I was four years old, uh, there was this freak accident in our house. There was a carbon monoxide gas leak, and my family got sick. My mom almost died. And from that point on, actually became an invalid, never recovering. 
And, you know, I, I grew up wanting to be a doctor. I grew up wanting to help people. I grew up playing piano on Sunday in church and not smoking and drinking and, you know, cussing or any of that. And then at 18, uh, in, in some ways, it's just so cliche, but I, I begin to live out the, the rebellion, you know, the, the prodigal son type parable where I, I say enough of the church, enough of the rules. I'm going to move to New York City. I'm going to have lots of sex and do lots of drugs and, and try and become rich and famous and, and, and try that on for size. And the way that I tried to do that was by becoming a nightclub promoter. I, I just couldn't believe that there's an actual job where you could get paid to drink alcohol for a living. I mean, <laughs> not only would you drink for free, your friends would drink for free. And, you know, <laughs> I was basically going to be a, a paid professional drinker. Yeah. And I wound up working at 40 different nightclubs, uh, really at the high end in, in New York over, over a decade. And what age was that? that, that the this is 19 to 28. Okay. 18, you know, the, the fringe of 18, 19 to, to 28. So, you know, yeah. And, and this is before, you know, I started working in the clubs before I was even allowed to be in the clubs. So, you know, I, I don't know. It was, it was this models and bottles, we used to call it, right? We would get the, the beautiful girls inside the club and then the, the really rich finance guys would come and pay lots of money to, to sit around them. And it would be not uncommon how for someone to come and spend $10,000 on champagne hmm. in a single night. We were selling bottles for, you know, 800 bucks, a thousand bucks. Sometimes they cost us 50 or 60 to, to buy. Wow. So it looks like a glamorous life. And I, I was collecting all the things that I thought would make me happy. The, the BMW, the Rolex, the model girlfriend, the grand piano in my New York city apartment, the Labrador retriever. It's got a one by one. And, uh, what was actually happening was I was, I was rotting inside. Um, I was smoking two to three packs of cigarettes a day. I was heavily using cocaine and ecstasy and MDMA and Special K. And I was a heavy drinker, a heavy gambler. I was addicted to pornography and strip clubs and, and, and just had come so far from any shred of morality or, or spirituality, you know, my youth. And this all came to a head for me. At 28 years old, I was in Punta del Este, South America, and you know I, I was with the beautiful people, and we'd rented this compound, and there were servants waiting on us, and there were horses in the backyard, and I remember spending a thousand dollars on fireworks, and we blew it up in our, you know, in our right next to the pool, and I just realized it was it was this moment of clarity. Um, I realized that there would, if I wasn't happy now, there would never be enough. Someone would always have a more famous girlfriend. Someone would always have a better watch, a better car, a private plane. I remember watching um, someone who we were with apathetically gamble $10,000 hands of blackjack. Like he, he just didn't care whether he won or he lost. Hmm. And it was almost like a, you know, the game of musical chairs where you know, the music stops and I, I just don't have anywhere to sit. It felt so unsettling. And I, I began to try to imagine what it, would, what it would look like to find my way back home, to come back to faith, to come back to morality or virtue and to get out of nightlife. And you know, back from New York City, back in New York City from this trip, um, I, I try to kind of drop the vices and smoke less and do less drugs and sleep around less. And I'm, I was trying to uh, do it, but it was just so unsuccessful. You know, and, and it took me about six months later and I, you know, I write about kind of the, 
the moment in clubs in a lot more detail in, in, in the book. But, you know, there was this moment where I just, I made a clean break and I sold almost every earthly possession I had. And I asked myself the question, what would the opposite of my life look like? What would the, not, not the pivot, not a 45 or a 90 degree turn, but what would a 180 degree opposite life look like? What would it look like to turn around and walk in the other direction? And the only thing I could think of was, why don't you go serve the poor? Go on a humanitarian mission and, and give one of the 10 years that you've wasted back, um, almost as a, as a penance or a, or a tithe. And, you know, I'll never forget, I was, I was um, at a dial-up internet cafe, and I started applying to volunteer at the famous humanitarian organizations I'd heard of over the years. And I put in all these applications, and I wait, right, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be able to pick from, from you know, the litter. Yeah. And then I'm, I'm, I'm shocked and dismayed as I'm denied by every organization um, that really has no idea how a nightclub promoter would be useful. Hmm. And finally, you know, thankfully, one organization says to me, look, if you're willing to pay us 500 bucks a month, and if you're willing to go live and, and serve in post-war Liberia, uh, this is the country I'd never even heard of in Africa, uh, then, then we'll take you. And I was like, I'm in. Here are my credit card details. <laughs> when, when, do we, when do I leave? And my life changed so dramatically and, and so quickly. Um, and, and a couple weeks later, I was, I was in West Africa for the first time in my life on a humanitarian medical mission um, faced with absolute extreme poverty um, for the first time in my life. And, and that really kind of was the turn that led me on this, this new journey. So you were there for a year. Is that did the time frame stick with what you actually said? turned into two years? Got it. So you're over there, and that was where you saw the drinking. Well, talk about the drinking. Well, like what is that firsthand? Like bring us into that scene, you know? Because sure. I think for most of us, we're just so disconnected from sure. yeah from that scene. Well, I was with a group of doctors and surgeons that were operating on a huge 522 foot hospital ship. So imagine an ocean liner that's been gutted and turned into a state-of-the-art hospital. And this humanitarian group would sail up and down the coast of Africa. They would pull into port with the best doctors and surgeons in the world, you know, who have decided not to go to the Maldives or the the Caribbean on vacation, but had decided to fly to Africa and and use their skills in the service of others. And, And when we would pull into the port, often there would be thousands and thousands of sick people that had come, 5,000 people standing in parking lots with massive deformities, with leprosy, people with blind with cataracts, people that were lame, people with flesh-eating disease, and just, just the most uh, horrific suffering. Hmm. And what struck me was we actually didn't, we had to turn people away. How? So we, we didn't have enough doctors. We, we didn't have enough surgery slots to offer. So one of my first experiences um, on the ground in Africa was sending 3,500 people home without hope, wow. saying, we, we, we can't help you. And, and I later learned that some of these people had walked with their children, with their sick children for, for more than a month. <laughs> they, you know, this wasn't like, hey, I'm just going to go you know, Run down, down the street. Yeah, this yeah. is a journey. This is, I heard there's a doctor in a neighboring country wow. and I'm going to walk a month and the list is closed. You know, the club is full. And, and it, was, it was so heartbreaking. So, you know, I, I really began to focus on the hope and, and on the people that we were able to help. We were able to help, we were able to help 1,500 people just in that first four months 
of, of the medical mission. But as I got off the ship and, and as I started traveling into the rural areas, I was, I was just, uh, shocked and, and appalled at the water people were forced to drink. And, 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 you know, you said, take us into the scene. So imagine, yeah. imagine a brown viscous river, imagine a green algae filled pond, and then imagine a child walking out of the, the forest or the woods with a bucket filling up water that you wouldn't give an animal. I mean, if your dog tried to drink this water, you would yank the, the collar. You would, you'd, you'd be worried that your dog would just vomit after drinking this water. But yet you're watching children, five-year-olds, three-year-olds, um, 13-year-olds. There was a 13-year-old girl named Hawa that was one of the first people I met drinking dirty water. And, and, and you're, you, you know that this is making them sick. So I learned that 50% of the country, 50% of the people in Liberia were drinking bad water. And, and, and then to make that worse, there was only one doctor for every 50,000 citizens. So if you actually got sick from water, you were out of luck. Jeez. Because the, the medical system had been broken by a brutal civil war uh, that had lasted 14 years. So I learned that 52% of all the disease throughout the developing world, or what some people might have heard referred to as the third world, half of the disease is caused by bad, dirty water, uh, lack of sanitation or toilets, and, and bad hygiene caused by, by the water as well. So, uh, you know, maybe, maybe going all the way back to a child, you know, wanting to be a doctor, wanting to help sick people, now being with actual doctors who were able to help only 1,500 people in a, in, a, in a country of millions, and then learning that half the country didn't have clean water. I'm like, that's my thing. I'm going to go to the root cause of this suffering, of this disease, of this sickness. I, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to try to work to make sure everybody has clean water. And and at the time, how it was, it was worse than it was now. It's a billion people without water. One out of every six human beings alive when I started Charity Water didn't have this thing that that so much of us just take for granted. And I think it was even more pronounced for me because I had been selling Voss water in my nightclubs for ten dollars a bottle. Mm. to people who wouldn't even open it. They would order 10 bottles, just let it sit there and go drink vodka or champagne instead. So just, uh, I just, I couldn't believe that we, we lived in a world where so many humans, a billion humans, didn't have their most basic need for, for health, for life met. And it was a solvable problem. That's the other thing. There were solutions. You could dig wells or drill wells or build rainwater harvesting systems or, or filtration systems. No one needed to drink dirty water. This wasn't like looking for the cure for a disease that we weren't sure was even out there. Uh, this was just, just as simple as helping people get clean water. So when you came back to New York, what was the kind of the journey from, you know, this wake up call you had overseas to, all right, I'm going to start a charity. Like, what was that? Where was that aha moment? What was that process like? Well, I should say I got clean. So before I joined the, the mission, you know, I, I went out with a bang and I smoked three packs of cigarettes and drank eight beers and <laughs> you know, actually turned, I actually checked in. It's funny, doing all these interviews with the book, people remember me turning up stinking like alcohol as I, as I joined the mission on uh, day one and surrendered my passport. But that was, that was it. I never smoked again. Um, wow. 14 years. I never uh, touched Coke or any of that stuff again. I never gambled again. I never looked at a pornographic image, uh, you know, in, in now a decade and a half. I, I really, I, I, in, in the most extreme way possible, I, I, I had to leave 
all of those vices yeah. on, on land and, and kind of sail away to this new life. It was, it was a do-over. It, it felt like I, I could actually, at 28 years old, just start a new story for my life. But I had to leave all that crap behind. I want to go off topic real quick and then we'll come back. But, you know, I just published a book, The Miracle Morning for Addiction Recovery. And, you know, obviously, I think everybody knows that addiction is, you know, it's one of the biggest problems in the United States. So I just, I feel for anybody listening that struggles with addiction, any advice, any thought, I mean, how, because what you did is pretty rare, right? To be able to quit cold turkey, all of those vices, never go back to them. I think there's millions of people in America and around the world that like, wow, I wish I had that discipline, that willpower, that, you know, whatever it is. Well, the environment really helped. So, you know, I mean, going from an environment of drinking and drugs that, you know, where the club starts at midnight and and ends at 4 or 5 a.m. Yeah. An environment of effectively Christian humanitarian doctors, right? Yeah. So there there weren't a bunch of drug dealers roaming the villages. No, or smokers, right? There were a couple guys in the engine room of the ship that would smoke. But so that really helped. And You know, going into a pure environment where the norm was not alcohol abuse, the norm was not uh, cigarette smoking or drug abuse, the norm was virtue, virtue as clean living in the service of the poor and in the service of others. So that that really that really helped me. That's a great point. And for anybody listening, and you're going, well, but I, I, you know, I can't, I don't have the resources right now to go on a mission. The lesson is still the same, right? Cleaning up our environment. You know, if we're hanging out with people that are, I always say that if you're hanging out with people that drink alcohol all the time, probably going to drink alcohol, right? They do drugs, probably end up doing drugs. So yeah, I think, Scott, that's a really, really important lesson or point is that you've got to change your environment and surround yourself with people that are not doing the things that you don't want to be doing anymore. So, And I admired them. I mean, this was amazing. I, yeah. I was, they were role models for me. Sure, 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 sure. Yeah, really powerful. All right, so yes. Back into the story of uh, how Charity Water came to be. So you came back, you got clean overseas and you stayed clean when you came back. And then how did you move into uh, starting a charity? Yeah, well, so I have my issue, okay? I'm, I'm going to be passionately focused on ending the water crisis, on bringing clean drinking water to everybody on earth. And I, I really could kind of see through to the end. You know, I could see this day on earth when everybody had clean water to drink no matter where they were born. So I start talking to my friends about this. And I should say that I, I'm, again, it's not a great time to start a charity because I'm 30 years old and I'm completely broke. And I'm sleeping on a walk-in closet floor of my old nightclub promoter friend's uh, apartment. So he takes me in. But uh, you know, th- this isn't a great time. But I'm running around and I've taken 50,000 photos in Africa. And I'm running around to, to nightclubs and I'm in DJ booths, opening up my laptop, showing pictures of people drinking dirty water saying, we need to do something about this. This is on fire. Like, this is not okay. And as I do this, I learn that there's a huge cynicism and a huge skepticism out there when it comes to charity. You know, so many of my friends were saying, oh, I don't give to charities. I don't trust charities. Uh, they're, They're black holes. I don't know where my money goes. I don't know how much of my money will actually reach the people that I'm trying to to help. And everybody seemed to have one scandal or one horror story that they could pull out of their back pocket. And, uh, you know, I thought, well, what if there was a different way to do this? What if there was a a new business model? What if there was a new way to get these disenchanted people and and get them to take another look, bring them back to the table? So the charity model was kind of eye-opening to you seeing that that needed to be changed? 
Yeah, yeah. And, and I learned that 42% of Americans said they distrust charity. And I learned that 70% of Americans polled by NYU uh, said that they actually believe charities waste money or badly waste money. So think about that. 70% of the people polled thought charities did the wrong thing with money. Hmm. And that surprises people how, because we have this culture of generosity, right? Who's more generous than Americans, right? I mean, we, we, sure. we, we are givers, but yet people don't trust the system. So the bigger vision actually became to reinvent charity. I loved the word charity. Charity means love. It means to help your neighbor in need and get nothing in return. And I thought the fact that so many people are turned off by the act of giving, the act of love, um, this is broken. And as I started talking to people, you know, I just said, well, what would make you want to give to a charity? What would that look like? What would it feel like? How would the charity treat you? How would they speak to you? Would it be transparent? What, what would that look like? And, and I, I came up with the 100% model just through talking with people. And people said, well, I would want to know that all my money is going to get there. And, and I said, okay, so 100% of your money, that would make you give? And then other people would say, well, I want to see proof of, of what the charity did with my money. I said, okay, so the charity would prove it. And, you know, other people said, well, I, I think charity brands suck, you know, and I said, okay, so it would, it would have a brand that, that, that felt like what, like Nike or Apple or Virgin. And, and I just started putting these things together hmm. and, you know, the hundred percent model was incredibly difficult, but, but I opened up two bank accounts and made that promise 12 years ago that every donation we would ever get from the public, whether it was a dollar or a hundred dollars or a million dollars would only build water projects that got people clean water. And in the second overhead bank account, we would somehow scrap and find hopefully visionary entrepreneurs or, or business leaders who would want to pay for the office salaries and the, you know, the, the flights and the office rent. Um, but the 100% model would, would be almost a mic drop, right? You couldn't use your excuse. Well, I don't know where my money's going because all my money's getting there. Yeah. And, then, and then because we created a non-fungible business model, we realized that we could use technology to prove what we had done with the money. We were going to be building water projects in countries all around the world. Water projects are these physical things. Clean water flows out of water projects. So I met the founder of Google Earth, um, which was starting at the same time, and realized, oh my gosh, like Google Earth and Google Maps, they're building this free place where we can tell everybody what we did with their money, where we can build the most hyper-transparent charity the world has ever seen. And, and we can prove all of those projects. So we said, look, we're never going to fund work anywhere in the world unless, um, you know, Hal could go to uh, Best Buy, buy a $50 GPS device, and then go and visit every one of these projects and make sure that they were there. So the second pillar became proof. And then this brand pillar was really important to me because I just saw so much shame and guilt in charity fundraising. You know, the, the leftovers from those commercials with the flies landing on African kids' faces and everything was in slow motion and they look up to the camera with sad eyes as the 800 number comes across the screen and, you know, people would give, but you would never tell someone about a commercial like that. You would never wear the t-shirt of that charity. Mm. And so many charities had anemic brands and their websites were lousy and their email marketing, you know, was terrible. And, and I thought that the great brands in the world don't peddle shame or guilt, right? Nike doesn't tell people that they're fat and lazy to yeah, turn yeah. off the TV and go for a run because then people wouldn't buy Nike gear, right? Nike tells people, you're amazing. You, yeah. There's greatness buried within you. You can 
run farther than you ever thought possible. You can climb that mountain, even if you don't have legs, right? And they tell stories of people overcoming adversity and reaching their goals. And someone turns off the TV and says, maybe I could try. And they do want to tell their friends and they do want to wear the logo of a company. So I wanted to do that with the charity. I, I wanted to make it fun and imaginative and creative and inspirational. And this was going to be an invitation to a party, the party of generosity, of radical generosity, a party that, that was about compassion and empathy and, and serving our, our brothers and sisters in need you know, across the world who just happened to be born in places with dirty freaking water. And you know, we could build a brand that felt a lot different. Um, and then the, the fourth pillar was just kind of a no-brainer to me. It was just always working through local partners. You know, Africa didn't need any guy from Philadelphia running around drilling wells. Southeast Asia or India didn't need a guy from, I don't know, LA uh, running a drilling rig. We, we would only and always work through local partners. I just believe for, for the actual water projects to be sustainable and culturally relevant, they had to be led by locals. So I say these four things now, like giving away 100% of the money and just proving where it went and building in a, a cool brand and, and using locals. None of them sound that smart or, or that radical, but it actually was. Nobody yeah. else was doing that at the time. So we just started to explode with growth and, and people just started throwing money at us. Yeah, speaking of growth, I'm curious as to how, with that 100% model being revolutionary, who were the first people that you went after, that you pursued, that you reached out to, to start supporting all of the operations of Charity Water so that the donations could go 100% to the actual cause? Yeah, it's one of my favorite stories in the book that I got to um, really honor uh, someone who helped with that. So when I started, the, the criticism was, okay, Scott, that's the stupidest idea you've heard. You're going to give away all of the donations. How will you ever even hire an employee? How, you know one wants to pay for your employee salaries only. No one wants to pay for your office rent. And I'm like, ah, I don't know. We're going to make it happen. So, so, so I'm just running the balancing act, trying to put money in the water bank account and fundraising there and then raising money for a little bit of overhead. And we, we hire our second employee and our third employee. And it's just you know, the overhead account is always lacking. It's always falling behind. And there's weeks when we're not cashing our, our paychecks. And, uh, you know, we're, 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 we're just, we're always out of money. But we were raising millions for the water project. So I knew that the 100% model was working, just not in a sustainable way. And about a year and a half into Charity Water, um, we ran out of money. We were basically almost, we were on the brink of insolvency. But yet, how I had $881,000 in the water account that I couldn't touch. And this was like, you know, nine months of, of funding or, or operations capital. But I had a couple of weeks left in the overhead account. And I was actually going to shut the organization down and say, all the critics are right. You know, I guess you have to be a you know, multimillionaire or a billionaire to actually have enough money to pay for the overhead. And, you know, at that moment, I was, I was praying like crazy. I, I had very little faith. Um, I wound up writing a cold email to an entrepreneur uh, of a social network, scraping his name off of a, a domain registry, off of the who is at the mm. time. And I was writing about something completely different, um, not an ask for money. It was, it was uh, pitching an idea about getting people to donate their birthdays. And uh, this entrepreneur writes me back and says, hey, I like your idea about birthdays for clean water, um, but, but it's bad timing for me and I, I can't help you. So six months later, you know, at, at the moment of, of really shutting the organization down, he resurfaced and says, hey, I'm coming through New York. I'd, I'd be happy to meet and, and learn a, bit, a little bit more about what you're doing. And, uh, you know, this, this British tall, 
lanky guy walks in my office. His name's Michael and sits down with me and I'm, I've got my laptop and I'm just you know, telling the stories. Hey, the 100% model's working. People are giving for the first time in their life. They're trusting again, but I'm totally broke in this other bank account. And he says, you know, I don't trust charities. He's like, I don't trust charities. And I'm like, I know, Michael, you're, you're like so many other people. That's why I built this model for people like you. And we, we have a pretty good meeting, I think. But, you know, he's, uh, he's not showing me much. You know, he wasn't really laughing or he wasn't, he was just, seems, seems pretty cynical, um, but very nice. And on his way out, he said, well, let me think about how to help you. And two days later, Hal, I get an email. He said, Scott, it was great spending time with you. I wired a million dollars into your overhead account. <laughs> wow. So we went from no more to 13 months of capital. And, you know, Michael said, you need more time to figure this out. And, and thankfully, we were able to use that extra time to for, find more people like Michael and his wife. And Charity Water now has 131 families that pay for all the overhead. And it's been, you know, the founders of Twitter and Facebook and Spotify, it's key execs at Apple, um, it's venture capitalists, it's entrepreneurs, it's, you know, it, it's the founders of, of 50 companies that people would have heard of that have actually gotten excited about paying for overhead, about helping us build the organization. And that's now allowed over a million donors to have a pure experience. I mean, people don't know this, but we actually pay back the credit card fees. So if you went on Charity Water right now and you dropped a hundred bucks with your American Express, mm -hmm. I wish I got a hundred, but I get 97. Sure. We actually make up that three bucks. So those 130 families pay back that fee and we'll wow. send your intended hundred dollars to the field and then we track it. Very cool. Very cool. I'm sure you guys have inspired a lot of other charities. I'd love to ask you about that. I know you inspired a friend of mine, John Broman, who says to say hello, by the way, he is a big fan. Oh, Awesome. Yeah, John runs the Front Row Foundation. And uh, it's the charity, I support Charity Water, but it's the big one I support. And he actually came to me a couple of years ago and shared your model and said, Hal, would you be willing to donate monthly to help cover our costs so that we can model what Charity Water is doing? Because I think it's brilliant. I want to know, Scott, do you know of other charities now that are you know, following in your footsteps and Charity Water's footsteps with the 100% model? I do, I do. And um, I'm, there's, there's a great charity called New Story that's basically doing what we would have done for shelter, building homes, mm. using 100% of the public's money, and, and then proving them. You know, here is the home that you paid for. Here's the family living in it, using photos and G GPS and video. Um, I, I'm very careful, though, about recommending it because it's incredibly diff difficult. Yeah. Um, it, it is, you have to run two bank accounts, basically, in perfect balance. And, and existentially, Charity Water could go broke with $100 million in the bank for water projects. We could mm -hmm. never touch it. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I, I certainly don't want other people to run it and become insolvent. Here's what I believe, though. I believe that donors are open to a lot of value propositions. The core belief is they just want to know where their money's going, right? If I yeah. told you right now that my copy machine was broken and we had a great need to print copies and I needed $650 to pay the Epson guy, you would write a $650 check right now. You would want to meet that need. You would yeah. want to help Charity Water. So it's the not knowing, it's the opacity that the sector has embraced and, and that, that culture of, well, my money for the disaster response might sit in a bank account for 12 years and actually never get used. Or my money might go into an endowment or an overhead account. It's, it's the not knowing. So I just tell people, you don't need the 100% model to be successful, but just tell people how you're using their money. And, and uh, you know, those, these 130 families, and, and I'm sure when, when John came to you, you're, you're happy to pay for the overhead. 
Yeah, like you, you just want to support him. You trust him. You believe in the mission. So we don't actually find that it's that hard to, you know, those 130 families would be bummed out if we were using their money for the water projects. Yeah. They love sure. the fact that they're paying for hydrologists or software engineers or the receptionist or, you know, the accounting team. They love that they are powering the people in the model. So I think I just believe in, in transparency in charities. Tell people what you're doing with their money and invite them into a lot of different opportunities to give and, and people surprise you. They want to be helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what's the future of Charity Water? You know, you mentioned that from the very beginning, you, as Stephen Covey teaches, right, you began with the end in mind. You literally saw the end of the global water crisis, which I think there's such an important lesson there for people to, you know, just have that vision, right? The more compelling the vision, the more inspired and motivated and driven we are to make that vision a reality. What's the future for Charity Water look like? Well, we're 12 years in and we've gotten eight and a half million people clean water. Uh, and the problem has come down to 663 million. So that's good news. Okay, this yeah. problem is we were a billion when we started, now it's 663. So we now have 178 of the current problem solved. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so, so you, you can look at that as half, half full or half empty, right? Someone said yeah. to me, like, just do 78 times more, right? And then <laughs> yeah, and yeah. it's there. Um, just, you know, scale, it's also, Scott, just scale, just scale, right? <laughs> it's also 1.3%. So that sounds even a little more daunting. But yeah, look, yeah. We're, we're trying to grow. Um, we, we're now helping about 4,000 new people every single day. And that's not because of me. It's not because of our team. It's because of our community. It's because everyday people have responded to the need for clean water. They, they've rejected the apathy you know, that might be so easy to embrace with a paralyzing global issue and said, I could do something. I could get 30 bucks and give one person clean water. I could do that every month. I could donate my birthday for charity water. I could join the overhead account. So we, we've seen, um, we've actually seen like the, the movement just begin to grow. And I mean, we grew 40% last year. We're up 40% again this year. I think also in such a uh, toxic, caustic political moment where it just seems like everybody's angry and, and everybody's fighting about everything. In some ways, you know, people have told us charity water is like a bomb. You know, it's everybody can do agree to agree that human beings should have clean water. Like sure. kids, kids should not be walking seven hours a day with dirty water on their backs, dropping out of school because they have to walk for water. Women should not be losing their children to diarrhea and dehydration. And, and it's, it's been amazing to see people who, who might disagree on just about every other social or political issue come together in solidarity and then say, we could agree on this. You know, Republicans and Democrats and independents and Jews and Christians and Muslims and atheists and Mormons. Like, it's, it's been a very, very big tent where, where people can agree on. So I think the best is yet to come. Yeah. Um, I, I think, you know, we're going to get a million and a half new people clean water this year. I want to, that's the KPI. I want to take that to 2 million and 3 million and 4 million. And, uh, and, and the way that we think we're going to do that is, is through a new community that we launched called The Spring. And it's, it's, it's not that revolutionary. It's kind of like Netflix or Spotify for clean water. And we have people now from 100 countries showing up every single month with what they can give. We have college kids giving 10 bucks. We have people giving 30 a month. We have people giving 100 bucks a month. And the consistency is the most important thing. You know, not the, oh, I heard that thing and I drove by it and dropped 100 bucks on the website. But actually, no, I'm, I'm going to stick with you guys. You continue to go out there and execute 
I might be willing to stick with you for three years or five years or 10 years. So we can see the number go from 600 million to 500 million and 400 million. And one day we can tell our kids and our grandkids that we actually were a part of, of solving the water crisis, of ending this needless suffering. So I'm, I'm passionate about the spring. It's grown to 100 countries. We have people in Africa now giving monthly, which I think is so cool. Wow. Where do you go when you get involved in the spring? Just charitywater.org slash spring. Okay. Charitywater.org slash spring. And then probably the last thing I want to talk about, but I definitely want to talk about this, is the new book. I think it's coming out. Um, I pre-ordered it. It's coming out, I believe, in October. Absolutely. It's called Thirst, A Story of Redemption, Compassion, and a Mission to End... I'm sorry, my curse is away. To bring clean water to the world. Why did you write the book? And what do people... Uh, what can they look forward to getting out of it? Yeah, well, I, I wanted to really share the message that I believe no one is beyond redemption. And your, your past really doesn't need to define you know, what you're able to do in your future. And, and I would hope that, you know, I go, I go there in the book. I mean, there's lots of drugs, there's guns, there's, you know, there's, there's darkness in there. And I, and I would hope that my story, you know, would, would encourage people because you're going to read it and you're like, oh my gosh, I am definitely not as bad as that guy. <laughs> I mean, I, I thought that, that I was bad. I mean, there is, I, I hope that would actually give people hope that, yeah. you know, if, if you'd met me over a plate of cocaine at five in the morning, you know, 14 years ago in a nightclub or a strip club, and someone said, hey, that guy's going to raise a third of a billion dollars and give 8 million people clean water, you know, and is going to be married with two beautiful kids and is going to make, you know, speeches about generosity and, and charity around the world. You'd be like, ah, not that guy. Yeah. Yeah. Like, definitely not that guy. So I would hope that, that just the, the personal story might inspire people. I, I believe um, you can actually, re- you could use the darkness in your past or the mistakes you've made and you can redeem that and use it for good. And then I would hope just to get people thinking about water. I mean, this is an issue we are only going to hear more and more about. Um, I would hope that some of the stories might move people to action and to want to be a part of this. I mean, it's a, I kind of look at it as an invitation to a party. The party, I can see it in my mind, it's when every human being has their most basic need for health and for life met. And, and that's now happening in 26 countries around the world as we're drilling wells and building all these different systems. And uh, you know, so many of these communities, how they define the history of their community as before the water came and after the water came. And there's just so many incredible stories. Uh, you know, I've been to 69 countries now. I've been to Ethiopia 30 separate times. And I, I just hope that the stories in Thirst would, would inspire people. And I, I donated the book advance to Charity Water. I'm, I'm not making a penny off of it. All the money goes back to the organization. And, and I would hope that just the book itself would actually bring clean water to people in need. Wow. I mean, that's one of the things that I'm excited about to read it is, is your story and the specifics of it the nitty gritty. And I read some of the reviews already on Amazon from your pre-readers just saying, you know, what a phenomenal storyteller you are. But to me, it's, you're doing something so big and so impactful. And I think that, or I don't think, I mean, I know that every single one of us, that's deep within us, that desire to make an impact, to change the world. And I think that it's priceless to read a story written by someone who's actually doing that, right? Who went from, like you said, the darkness to not just the light, but to shining the light on millions of other people. So I commend you, Scott. I appreciate you. I'm so grateful that we had this time together today. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate you and everything you give to and the the joy you bring into the world. You got it, brother. Well, for everybody listening, check out the book Thirst on Amazon. Go to charitywater.org forward slash spring and get involved. 
Goal Achievers, I love and appreciate you. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Achieve Your Goals podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I have. I love you. And I will talk to you very, very soon. Take care. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the Achieve Your Goals podcast and to get access to today's show notes, transcript, and exclusive content from Hal Elrod, visit halelrod.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the Achieve Your Goals podcast.